I turned 40 yesterday. So I am, I am now in my 40s, and if you're trying to do the math, that means I was born in 1929. So, uh, so I've been wrestling kind of with this a little bit, not feeling incredibly insecure with turning 40, but at the same time, it's a whole new, you know, it has a totally different connotation with it than 30s do, right? I mean, 40, 40 just sounds old. I mean, 30, 30 doesn't sound old, but 40 sounds like something the tortoise or like Eeyore would say, right? It's like, how old are you, Eeyore? I'm 40. 40. Yeah, so it's just, it's just depressing, right? When you, how old are you? I'm, I'm 40. Like, there's no, there's no fun way to say 40. Like, when you're in your 30s, there's still a little bit of spunk to it, right? I mean, there's, there's the, the word itself, 30. I'm 30. Even though I'm 39, there's still, and it, you know, it's like 30. It just kind of sounds more fun. It rhymes with flirty, which I was never any good at, but it still sounds better. Somehow I got my lovely wife, and she had to put up with my my ineffective flirting, but aside from the word sporty, do you know what rhymes with the word 40? Shorty and warty. Like there's no good rhyme for 40. So if you're writing a song about what it's like to be 40, you better be short and have words because that's what it's gonna be like. But um, also being 40 is only one letter, one letter away from being, I apologize, farty, but I also hear, that that's inevitable as your age increases. So, uh, but I've noticed my priorities are changing as I get older. Anyone notice that? Your priorities start to shift as you mature in age. That's a politically correct way of say getting old. But uh, in your 20s, you're ambivalent to the effects of aging on your body, right? You can just kind of continue on the way you did in your teens. In your 30s, you start to realize the effects of growing up and growing old than all that has on your body, maybe having kids and the effects that that has on your body. And now, I will make an extra trip to Costco so I don't have to overpay for my fiber supplement. So, you know, priorities definitely shift as you get older. But uh, I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm making my peace. I'm trying to you know, so I'm telling a few jokes to kind of laugh it off a little bit, just to make it a little bit easier. I've got enough gray in my beard to prove that I'm at least 40 years old. And based on the quantity of the gray hair that's in my hair and in my beard, I'm at least 40 years old, right? That's the bottom end of the threshold based on my appearance. In fact, someone recently guessed my age and they said I looked 45. Which you could take as an insult, right? But I didn't because it's kind of like overachieving. I overachieved my age. Like, like, I, it's like I put on an additional half decade worth of experience into my beard. But, but for some reason, I don't understand why we do this, but we feel compelled to guess other people's ages, right? I mean, we probably do this, oh, they probably look such and such an age. But you talk about double standards. Because there's a cardinal rule that you do not guess a woman's age. But the same thing doesn't even exist at all for men, right? It's just like open season. It's like, oh, just look at, guess how old he is. You know, he must be 40, 50, 75 years old. It's just, just have fun at it, right? It's like, and so I was thinking about it. It's like, we could create a reality TV show 
out of guessing men's ages, right? We could just parade men across the stage, and then as they're parading across the, straight, the stage, we could have a panel of judges sitting out, and their whole, the whole role of what they're doing is to guess men's ages as they walk across the stage. And, and then they could have a great big screen up above where the judges put their guests. It's like, oh, he looks like he's about 52. He looks like he's, ah, he can't be 52, must be 39, and, and, and just kind of as they do it. And then at the end of the show, they, they average all of the ages that, of all of the judges and what they guessed, and the, and the contestant whose guest age was farthest away from their actual age would win a year's supply of insure. And that would be like the big prize. But I'm getting older, and that's, I guess, a good thing. It's respectable, right? It's res more respectable to be 40 and be a pastor than it was to be in your 30s and be a pastor. I mean, now people look at me and they ask how old I am and I say 40. It's like they can actually believe that I've been around the block a time or two. And now that I have the gray hair and the age to go along with it, I can be one of those old guys that gives unsolicited advice. And there's nothing anyone can do about it because you have to respect the elderly, right? So like I can say whatever I want from this point forward and, and you just have to deal with it. 40 was a significant number in the Bible. It reigned for 40 days and 40 nights. So this is a significant, a significant moment, I think, for me. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. So maybe what's happening is I'm coming out of the wilderness and getting ready to enter into the promised land. Like that's, that's what lies ahead of me, right? Yeah, so... Uh, it, it's, it's a period of testing, and so maybe my period of testing is over, like Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days, and when his period of testing was over, you know, he came out and he had this great ministry. So Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, gets tempted by Satan, emerges victorious by the power of the Holy Spirit. But me, on the other hand, um, I've lived rather comfortably for the last 40 years, I rarely go longer than 40 minutes without eating or drinking something, which probably also explains my need for fiber supplements. But um, all that to say, I'm happy to be in my 40s, and, uh, and I am glad that there are others going to be joining the club in the near future as well. I won't be here by myself. <clears throat> <laughs> So today we are looking at, we're actually turning a corner as we head towards the last two weeks of the series, and we're going to look at Jesus and his ministry, talking about how Jesus came out of the wilderness after the 40 days, and the ministry that he had after that period of testing in the wilderness was this incredible ministry, and it looked exactly like what we're trying to be as a church. It looked like Micah 6.8. So we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at the mission of Jesus. We covered the character of Jesus. We covered the habits of Jesus. And now we're going to spend a couple weeks looking at the mission of Jesus and what he did with his life. And so um, our big idea for this week, if you want to write it down, is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were acts of doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. So I'll give you a second to write that down. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection 
were acts of doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. And we're going to look at that this morning and see how Jesus did justice, loved mercy, and walked humbly in his life and ministry. Our identity statement is, I am never more like Christ as when I do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. I'm never more like Christ as when I do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Now I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read a couple verses. First, we'll start uh, our, with our memory verse. And so uh, hopefully you can start to get, get this down after reading this several weeks in a row. Ask you, if you will, with a little bit more enthusiasm than the past couple weeks, to uh, read this one with me out loud. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of, Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through 45. Good. Now, while you're still standing, one more. Micah 6, 8. We haven't read this one out loud. I don't know if you can find that slide, but let's read this out loud together. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Micah 6, 8. Good job. Lots of, lots of good enthusiasm. Proud of you guys. So that's the kind of church we've been trying to be for six years. A church that does justice, loves mercy, and walks humbly with God. And we've, over the years, explained it many, many times. And so today, uh, what I want to try to do is actually have a little bit more of a dialogue and less of, less of a monologue about it and see where we are in our understanding of these three concepts, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly. This is the mission of our church. This is the what that we want to do on a day in and day out basis. The why is Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, sending of the Holy Spirit, all of the goodness of what God has done for us. That is why we do what we do. The what that we want to do is doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. And if this is the call that is on our lives, then it's imperative that we understand what it means to do justice. So. Just for a minute or two, I want to ask, if you will, throw out some ideas on what does it mean to do justice? What does it mean to do justice? To do what is right. Good. How else would you dis define or describe doing justice? Mm-hmm. Protect those who can't protect themselves. That's good. Obeying the laws. That's a good one. Yeah, that's why I always rant about people going slow in the passing lane because it's against the law. That's my only concern is the law. What's that? 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to mellow on that one. I think God's going to have to work a little bit harder on that one for me. How else would you define doing justice? What does it mean to do justice? Okay, good. Speaking out or taking action when you see injustice, that's a good one. Leveling the playing field, yeah. Acts of charity, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big injustice in our time is the, is the lack of family care that's kind of been going on. That's a good one. Be fair when representing someone. <laughs> You're Googling it, huh? Yeah. What's... Okay, good. Good. Someone over here was saying something? Serving, loving, and joy. Yeah, yeah. Well, real quick, just let me kind of recap a couple of things here that, that we've taught. That justice is getting what you deserve, period. Right? So if you do right, you get rewarded for doing right. You get treated that way because you did right. So when we live by God's terms, we get rewarded with God's presence. Living by God's terms, the reward is God's presence. If we do wrong, then we get punished. So if we live by our own terms, then we get punished with God's absence. So that's kind of a simple, just, just justice, that's what, it, that's what it is. When you do right, you get rewarded. When you do wrong, you get punished. And, the, and God talks about the scales of justice and, and the Lord detests dishonest scales and those kinds of things. So it's doing the right thing in any given situation. And oftentimes that will mean intervening as we have the capacity in a situation to help. But that gets complicated. We'll talk about that in a minute depending on how much time, because I'm committed to ending at a certain time this morning. Um, yeah, you're all laughing and you're... Yeah, no, I'm not going to tell you what time it is, but I've got a time in my mind that I'm, hit, I'm aiming for. But that brings up a question, how do we know what the right thing is? So if, if doing justice is doing what's right or fighting for what's right or you know, intervening on behalf of someone else for what's right, how do we know what the right thing is? You just know? There's a book, yeah. And what'd you say? Stay in the scriptures, yeah. Yeah, yeah. a lot of it, Margaret, I think you're right, is we actually, there, we, I think a lot we just know what's right and wrong. And that, that a lot of times when we're stirred in our heart and our conscience, there's a reason that we're stirred one way or another. But that's not, the, that's not the ultimate source. The ultimate source is to know what God says is right and wrong. 
and to live according to what God says is right and wrong, and then to help establish the standards of, in my own life of, of living according to God's standards and do my best to help others with that as well. Now, a question that I don't know if we've talked much about, but I would love to hear your thoughts on, how did Jesus do justice? Can you think of some, any ways that Jesus did justice? Okay, so how was that doing justice? Because what they were doing was wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you remember what Jesus said in that moment? He called them vipers. He called them vipers. That's one of his favorite nicknames. When Jesus turned the tape, the the tables. Yeah. He said, it's called, my father's house should be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves, right? And so he was correcting what he knew to be right. That's a good example. What else? What else can you see as Jesus doing justice? Okay. So that's, that's uh, can you explain that just a little bit more? Can be a little? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right, so he stuck with the truth no matter what it cost him, right? Yeah. Margaret? Right, exactly, yeah. Right, yeah, so even though your money might be going to an immoral entity in Caesar, Jesus still said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? We try to rationalize that today. Why shouldn't I, I don't have to pay my taxes because of what the government does with the money. Well, that's not what Jesus said. And Rome was a lot more immoral probably than our government. An example I want to to point out, and in fact, Matthew chapter 23, if you want to read that chapter over the course of this week, would kind of give you a good picture of Jesus doing justice. But Jesus confronted the injustice that was being done in his Father's name. One of the biggest injustices that Jesus confronted was the way the Pharisees treated the people and, and the standards they expected the people to live up to. In Matthew 23, verse 1 through 4. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you to do. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. 
So this was a big injustice that Jesus was, was teaching against throughout his whole ministry about the Pharisees putting a load on the people, cumbersome loads. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves were not willing to lift a finger to live up to the same standards. But as we start to transition from doing justice towards loving mercy in Matthew chapter 23, you actually can't read much of the Gospels and Jesus' ministry without seeing a combination and a connection between justice and mercy. They, they seem to come up in pairs and in tandem all the time, and they, it happens here. It, it may not look, at, look like it, but I'll point it out. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said, woe to you. So Jesus is pronouncing a woe to the teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He says, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Especially in the context of somebody who's teaching and, and teaching somebody to follow God, there is injustice when it comes to being led astray. And one of the greatest things that I, one of the greatest injustices that, that needs to be fought for is teaching God's truth and abiding by God's truth and not, not creating burdens out of what God teaches. And so Jesus is confronting that, and by confronting that, it's for one, an act of justice, but it's also an act of mercy. And at the same time, he says, you should have paid attention to mercy. Then later he says in verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, there's his nickname, how you will escape being condemned to hell. Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Jesus calls them a brood of vipers who are in danger of being sent to hell. And at the same time, the very next sentence, he says that he is sending them prophets and sages and teachers. Why would he do that? Mercy. To try to draw them back in, right? To show them mercy and draw them back in. And, but he, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He says, some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And then at the very end of the woes, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her, her wings and you were not willing. So you can see the tender-hearted compassion and mercy of Jesus here. Even though he's having to correct some very difficult things, he still desires to gather all of the people, all of God's chosen people together and protect them under his wing. Part of the problem, though, that we've experienced with justice is that without God's grace, we cannot execute justice without bringing condemnation on ourselves. Without God's grace, we cannot execute justice without bringing condemnation 
on ourselves. John chapter 8, verse 7, when they brought the woman that was caught in the act of adultery and they wanted to stone her, and Jesus stands up for the woman who was guilty of the sin that she was being accused of, and he stands up in her defense and stands up in front of her to protect her. We read this, it says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. So to be justified, so to speak, to hurl condemnation at someone or to condemn someone, we have to be without sin. That's a problem. Mark chapter 2. Verse 6 through 11, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So we're going to see that Jesus actually has the power to forgive sins like we've talked about. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you, <laughs> excuse me, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. By the way, that's what he did. Because the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, because he was without sin. So since he is without sin, he has the authority to forgive sins. God is the God of grace. It is his grace that we receive. What does it mean to love mercy? Okay, taking the log out of your own eye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What were we starting to say? Yeah, that's good. We're going to get to humility in just a minute. That one, that one, all, they all tie together here. <laughs> hey, you're honest. That's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we forgive because we have been forgiven much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, it's interesting because a lot of times, you know, you know we just, we just kind of glom on to the word mercy, but this, the word before it is love. And this is the same word that is used in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, where it says, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? So, you know, that's the exact same word. So we're supposed to, in the same way as we love God, love mercy, which makes a lot of sense when you start to understand who God is. Compassion. compassion. So compassion then, thank you, that was my next bullet point. We're moving right along. Compassion is to walk with someone in their pain, right? That's literally what the word compassion means when you break it down. Co, with, right? Co or come. Co and then passion means pain. We talk about the passion of Christ and we're referring to him enduring the cross on our behalf. That is what passion refers to, pain. So compassion is walking with someone in their pain and that's a synonym for the word mercy. And the word love means 
to desire. And it can mean brotherly and romantic and affectionate love, but here we're talking about mercy. So it means to desire, to have an appetite or a hunger for mercy. Good. So with that in mind, loving mercy, compassion, walking with someone in their pain, can you think of some times where Jesus loved mercy? Yeah. So you could, you could also argue that's doing justice, right? Because it's not right for someone when you have the, the antidote for their ailment to leave them in that situation. Right. Yeah, he had, uh, he had tax collectors who were his disciples, right? And they were some of the most despised people. And he often came to the, the defense of people who would be considered the chief sinners in his time. Any other examples that come to mind? What's that? Oh, right, yeah, Malchus, right? When, when Peter cuts off the ear, he puts it back. No? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, that's a great one. Yeah, he's hanging there in excruciating pain, and still in that moment of pain has mercy. Yeah, yeah, that is. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Right? Right? Yeah, we equate the Old Testament with God being angry and upset all the time. But he had established a covenant with his people, and they kept breaking the covenant. And he would get angry, and then, but then he would give them grace when they repented and turned back to him and did live the right way. Why, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, to, to answer it quickly, it's who he is. So, so God is love, God is mercy, God is grace, God, all of these attributes that we talk about wanting to possess in our lives is who God is by nature. And so, so yes, he's also just, and when he sees an injustice, he wants us to live according to his standards and his law, but he's also merciful. So, so he's constantly at work in both because that is who he is. And so you know, I, think, I think he wants us to constantly come to repentance, to come back into his original plan for us, which was to be in his presence all the way from the beginning to the end, his desire is to be with him. And so he's gonna be merciful and, and continue to draw us out of our sin into repentance so that we can be in relationship. I think that's the whole idea. Let me give you a couple quick examples. Matthew 14, 14. 
When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and like Jim talked about, healed their sick. Jesus saw the sick in the crowd, and he had compassion and healed them. Matthew chapter 20, I'm going to cruise through a couple here really quick. 20, verse 30 through 34. Two blind men were sitting by the side of the road. When they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. Two blind men sitting by the road, Jesus stopped and asked, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed them. Luke chapter 7, verse 12. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier. They were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. Jesus gave him back to his mother. His heart going out is an expression of compassion. Mark chapter 6, verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Jesus lived a life of justice and he lived a life of mercy. Very, very incredibly. What does it mean to walk humbly with God? Walk humbly with your God. What does that mean to walk humbly with your God? Don't brag. That's a good start. Hmm. Yeah. Teachable. Good. Being submissive. That's a bad word. We don't use that word around here anymore. Knowing who you are in comparison to who he is. That's a good one. Being repentant. Yeah, when we don't live up to God's standards, we repent of that. We turn away from it and turn back to his way instead of fighting for our way, right? Give me what I want. I want to live my life how I want to live it. One of the ways that I've mentioned it, we, just, we talk about not forcing God to walk your path, but walking humbly with God on his path. And a lot of us I, over our lives, I've done this in my life many times where I try to make God walk where I want to go instead of walking where God wants me to go. But I think a lot of our, uh, you know, this helps, I think, paint some understanding to an expression that we struggle with, and that is fearing the Lord. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Fear God. Oh, so is, uh, is that essentially the same thing as walking 
humbly with God. It's worshiping God. It's awe and reverence. And, and it is acknowledging who he is and who we are by comparison. And so I walk humbly with God because he is God and I am not. And this all starts with our creation, with the very beginning of the story of mankind in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground. What did he form the man from? Dust. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Why do we have life? Because God breathed it to us. God gave it to us, right? So the Hebrew word for man is Adam or Adam. And Adam is related to the Hebrew word for ground or earth. A-D-A-M-A-H is the word. And I'm not going to try to pronounce it because I don't speak Hebrew. Adam literally means ground man or earth man or dirt man. The man who was made from the ground. And so Adam, the, the, the first person that God made was dirt man, earth man. In Latin, where we get our word, we get the word human, right? That's the word we talk about, we are humans or homo sapiens. Homo means man, humanus means human, and hummus means ground. So, so humanus means human, hummus means ground. They're all essentially the same word. So hummus is dirt, which is why I don't eat hummus, because I'm not a cannibal. I don't eat other people. That's just not something that I do. And if you want to eat the hummus and, and be one of those people, that's up to you. But um, actually, while we're, we're talking about walking humbly with God, short little clip from one of my favorite movies, Rudy, that I would like to, uh, like to have us watch that I think helps summarize this really well. If we have some audio. Might have to start it over. That's Spotify still playing. It's like a Chinese movie with the words being off. There is a God and I'm not him. And I remember you know, watching that movie and seeing that when I was a kid and and I remember my dad even kind of poking fun at that, like, this is your big defense of God. There is a God, and I'm not him. But when it comes to walking humbly with God, I think that's actually the foundation for us. There is a God. We are not God. So we walk humbly with God. There is a God. I'm not him. How did Jesus walk humbly with God? Crucifixion was humiliating, right? He accepted his purpose. He came to do only the Father's will. Could have done his own things, had the power to do whatever he wanted, could have accepted the gift of Satan and ruled over all of the earth, right? But he was obedient. He became a human being. That's humbling. Mm -hmm. 
right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When he was in the wilderness. Washing the disciples' feet. Yeah. That's a humble move, isn't it? Yeah, one of my favorite examples is from his prayer in the garden, which I've referenced a lot lately, I know, and you're probably sick of it. But Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. If you knew what you were about to endure and going to be beaten and whipped and mocked and crucified and hung naked on a cross, exposed for everyone to make fun of, you would probably be praying the same prayer. And Jesus' response was to walk humbly with God. This is, this is what you sent me here to do. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to anyway. Philippians chapter 2, you've heard me quote this one a lot. It's one of my favorite verses, and it's worth memorizing if you haven't. If you haven't ever memorized scripture, this would be a great one to start with. But Paul says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, now think about walking humbly with God. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. Life humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So all those things we've just talked about, how Jesus walked humbly with God, are right there in that verse. And in fact, Jesus, walking humbly with God, set an example for us that contradicted the burden that the Pharisees had put on them. So we start to see justice and mercy also become intertwined with walking humbly. He says, take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke and you'll find rest for your souls. Why? Because I am gentle and humble in heart. Now, I'm not, I don't have time to really bring all of these three together and kind of wrap all of this up with our big idea and all of that stuff. We will do that uh, in the devotionals this coming week. I have a lot more content, but I don't want to uh, dump all of that on us for today. But I do want to, I do want to tie it all together here from Psalm 103. One of the reasons I think it's important to, and we can actually see this from the life of Jesus, and we didn't really get into it, but another attribute of Jesus' life was that he, he, he had the whole counsel of Scripture 
in his heart and in his mind. And so you can see that when he's being tested and tempted in the wilderness, that he's, even though the devil comes at him with scripture and he tries to use scripture to get Jesus off track, Jesus is aware of the whole picture, the whole counsel of scripture. And so he knows when the devil uses something to try to contradict what God says and he responds in kind with what God has desired. And so it's important to take in the whole counsel of scripture. And we spend a lot of time in the New Testament and that's good, we should spend a lot of time in the New Testament, but this justice, mercy, and humility is kind of a core DNA function of the kingdom from, from the beginning all the way through until Jesus returns to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. And we see this here in Psalm 103, verse 10 through 14. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That's justice. Our sins deserve for us to be treated a certain way, but God does not treat us as our sins deserve, and that's mercy. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities, which is what we deserve, that is justice, but at the same time, because he doesn't repay us according to our iniquities, that is him showing us mercy. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him, that's humility. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's his position, that is his status, that is where he exists. As high as he is, so great is his love for those. So his, great is, his love is as great as the, however high he is above the heavens. And that's how great his love is for those who fear him, who walk humbly with him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's mercy. As far as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Mercy. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. He knows how we were formed. And so he shows us mercy, compassion. So our big idea was that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were acts of doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. That is how Jesus lived his life. And now for us, if we're becoming like Christ, then, then, the, then to become truly like Christ is to live out Micah 6.8 on a daily basis, that we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God all day, every day. And that's when we are most like Christ, because that is how Christ lived his life. Any questions as we wrap up? There'll be a lot more content in the week ahead. I encourage you to, uh, to try to get some of that as we get on the uh, devotionals this week. But any questions about what we covered today? Right. Yeah, exactly. You want them to pay for the wrongs they have done. Right. That's true. That's a good point. Any other thoughts?
Right, and, and doing it for the right reasons, right? Not, not, yeah. But the more, you know, the more we become like Christ, the more we're in God's word and spending time with the Father, the more we are in relationship with the Father, the more we're going to become like Jesus and the more natural it will be for us to see opportunities in our lives to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. And I think not, not doing it from the standpoint of, I, I have to do this because this is the burden that's put on me, right? This is the religious yoke that I have to carry as a, as a Christian. I have to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. We get into big danger, I think, when we get into that uh, motive behind doing anything in the kingdom. But when it comes from becoming when it comes from, this is, this is who I am becoming, this is who I am in Christ, and now it's a lot more, I think, natural in our lives that we see opportunities to do it, and we also have, we have the, uh, the, the motive, maybe, the, the drive, the desire to want to do something instead of trying to do it for the wrong reasons. We want to do it for the right reasons. The band comes. Just, I want to uh, pray. Invite you to join me also in the, a moment or two of prayer, reflection. Just ask if you will bow your heads, close your eyes, and as we have already prayed at the beginning of the service, we. We want God to do his work in our hearts. One of my desires for us as a church is that we embrace repentance and that we move away from repentance feeling like a bad and oppressive word to being a free word that we embrace that that draws us into God's new life for us, that we don't feel condemnation or shame or judgment when we have something we need to repent of, but we see God's goodness at work in that, that he is drawing us into his better life, his better plan, his better purpose. And so repentance isn't a thing to look down on, it's a thing to celebrate that we want to become more like Christ than anything in us that is not like Christ we want to walk away from and want to walk towards Christ in that area of our lives. So just a question or two to think about. There is a right, there is a standard that God has set. There is truth, there's right and wrong according to God's standards. Have you received God's gift of grace? Because we're gonna talk about this week that all of us have sinned and fall short of God's standard. We all need God's grace. Without God's grace, we are under the, the judgment of our sins and deserve to pay the punishment for our sins. But God, through Jesus Christ, offers the free gift of God's grace to us. We don't find that in our own truth. We don't find that in our own idea of right and wrong. 
We have to die to that. We have to leave that behind and receive God's truth, his right way of living. So if you're here this morning and you haven't yet received that gift of grace, I, through Jesus Christ, offer it to you now. This is his gift to give you that he wants you to have. We understand that we're sinners in need of a savior. What's required of us is belief in Jesus, what he did. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe in the work that he did and you commit your life, you confess your sins and commit your life to following him, you are his. Now your life is washed in his grace and his mercy. You're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You have a new life to embrace from this moment forward, a life of becoming more like Christ. Maybe you're in Christ. And there's just been a lot of thinking in your own terms and trying to do God on your own way and with your own mindset, your own way of thinking about him. And maybe right now in this moment, he's bringing something to mind, a, a, a flawed way of thinking about him, about being in the kingdom. And that's something he wants you to turn away from because he doesn't want you to just have an idea of the truth. He wants you to have his whole version of the truth. Anything else is not just, it is not justice. It's not what is right. Is there something in your life that's not right? Some way we haven't been living rightly. God's offering you grace right now to turn away from that, to repent of that, have a change of heart and a change of mind that leads to a change in action. That from the deepest part of us, we desire to live differently and we commit to living in the actions of our lives differently from this point forward because God has given us the spirit to move us in that direction. And the spirit is the spirit of truth. The spirit cannot lead us and lies and deception, it can only lead us in the truth. Maybe it's in the area of mercy. Maybe you've done mercy but haven't loved mercy. Are you struggling to be merciful this morning, struggling to show someone mercy, maybe who doesn't deserve it and who never will? But God wants you to, in light of what he's done for you, offer the same mercy to them. What's been poured into your heart, he wants to pour through your heart. And through your life, he wants to pour out mercy upon mercy upon mercy to the lives around you, that they might experience God's mercy through you. Maybe it's walking humbly with God. Maybe we've been trying hard to get God to walk with us and trying to get God's permission to go a way we want to go and doing our best to pull him along and this morning God is saying to your heart stop stop that I've got this better way for you I've got a I've got a different direction 
You can't see it right now, but I've got a different plan and I want you to go this way. And though this way may not have the allure of the way that you want to walk, I want you to walk in my way. And what the work God wants to do in your heart is to walk humbly with him. Awe and reverence and worship, total surrender to his will. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Christ. We thank you for the way he lived out this 6-8 life with perfection. That we can look to the life of Christ and we can see what it means to live the 6-8 life. We can know what it means to do justice because Jesus lived the life of justice. We can, we can look at the life of Christ and see someone who loved mercy because he loved mercy. It poured out of every part of who he was. We can look at the life of Christ and see what it means for the Son of God, the one who could have used his godness to his own advantage to walk humbly with God, to submit even to the process of death, because that was what needed to happen. Father, in our own lives, I pray that you help us to be the kind of people that do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with you that you help us in every area of our lives to do what's right and at the same time to fight for what's right, not to condemn others for not living up to your standards, but to help draw them in through your love, your grace, your mercy, through humility and compassion to draw them into your right way of living, not put standards on them that they cannot live up to because they are not of Christ, but to show them by example and to show them by the unconditional, undying love of the Father that is overflowing out of our hearts what the right is. Father, help us to be a people of mercy, that love mercy, that we just, we love being merciful to one another when we make mistakes and when we do stupid things to one another, we be overwhelmingly merciful to one another. We're merciful to the people in our lives and even when it doesn't make sense, when it feels like we should rain down the harsh hammer of justice, we love being merciful because we have been shown such great mercy. You are rich in mercy and you want to give us your riches of mercy. Help us to live out of the abundance of that rich mercy. And Father, give us the courage to walk humbly with you, to lay down our rights, to lay down our lives, to lay down anything we're fighting for, for our own agenda, and to walk humbly where you want us to go, to be used by you for building your kingdom and making your name great, not our name, but your name. Help us to be a church that lives out this 6-8 life by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory and praise of the Father in Jesus' name. Amen.